listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in college, my roommate Cole and I had this tradition. See, we both had a break between classes around 11.30. It was like right at 11.30 a.m. So we would meet back at the dorm, and we would put on the TV, we would eat lunch, because at that particular time, every single weekday, 11.30 a.m., Law and Order was on. Yes, Law and Order. And in case you are unfamiliar with Law and Order, let me refresh your memory. Can you hear that? That's a theme song. That's the whole point. It's not super important to, the, uh, to where I'm headed with this. But we would come back and we'd watch Law and Order. And Law and Order, if you've ever seen a single episode, every one is structured the exact same way. Longest running TV show on primetime. But there's basically three different parts. Part one is where a crime is committed. It's usually a pretty short part. Part two is where the police investigate the crime. So they're kind of grilling witnesses. They're out on the street talking to people, and uh, eventually they end up arresting the perpetrator, alleged perpetrator. And then part three, of course, takes place in the courtroom. And in the courtroom, you have the lawyers, and they are just, they're, they're grilling this accused person, and they're, they're trying to, to make their case. And the most climactic moment in pretty much every episode happens when the witness takes the stand. The witness walks up into the witness box, and they get sworn in, and you know, do you swear to tell the whole truth? Nothing but the truth to help you, God, I do. And then they give their testimony. And there's a whole lot hanging on this testimony because really the life of the defendant hangs in the balance. So every detail gets picked apart to determine if it's credible or not. Is the witness reliable? Is their testimony believable? Everything boils down to this. Can we trust the witness? Can we trust that this, this witness is telling the truth. In our text this morning, John paints a kind of courtroom scene for us. And really, he's been making the case throughout all of this book of 1 John that Jesus is God in the flesh. Remember, this is why he wrote this book, because there were some that were claiming he did not, in fact, come in the flesh. So John's been, been going all over the place to make this argument in a million different ways. And now in today's text, he calls 
a witness to the stand. He calls God to the stand. And as God approaches the stand, he provides three different pieces of testimony, all of which say the same thing. Verse 7 says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three testify. So like good courtroom observers, let's examine each testimony one by one. The Spirit and the water and the blood. So, testimony number one, we have the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but of all the three people in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit makes me the most uncomfortable, because I'm not quite sure what to do with him sometimes. He's kind of like the the crazy uncle in the Trinity. He's unpredictable. You never know quite what he's going to say or he's going to do, right? Scripture describes the Holy Spirit as a a wind or a breath that blows where it will. I mean, with the Father and the Son, at least we kind of have some frame of reference to compare them to, right? I, I know what an earthly father is. We all have fathers, whether biological or, or adopted or, or otherwise. Um, we all know what a son is, right? As someone who has a particular relationship with the father. So we can kind of wrap our minds in a way around the father and the son, at least. But the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Ghost, I mean, that seems a whole lot more ethereal. And we're uncomfortable with what we can't understand, so we usually just avoid it. I mean, I grew up as a Lutheran, and I can count on one hand the number of sermons I've heard on the Holy Spirit. And I'm as guilty as anyone. I think there are times when we recognize that our own theology of the Holy Spirit maybe isn't as robust as it should be. Now, on the one hand, there are reasons for this. An unhealthy singular fixation on any one person in the Trinity to the exclusion of the others leads to heresy or at least gross error. All you have to do is kind of glance back at church history And you'll see all sorts of examples of this playing out. In Martin Luther's day, there were a couple of of prophets, so-called self-proclaimed prophets, that took to the streets of Wittenberg where he lived and where the Reformation was taking place. And these two prophets, so-called, they they came on the street, and, and what they claimed to have was a special revelation from God apart from the Bible, not through the Bible, apart from the Bible, and they claimed that that revelation was the authoritative revelation. You can see the problem with this way of thinking. You can see the danger with it. If anyone can claim to have direct revelation from the Holy Spirit about anything, there's no way to say with any certainty what's right and what's wrong, what's from God and what is not. For a more modern-day example of this kind of thing, you can read the introduction to the devotional Jesus Calling, where author Sarah Young claims she received a similar kind of direct revelation from God beyond what the Bible says. Pneumatology, which is a fancy term that just means the study in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, when it goes off the rails, it does so in a pretty spectacular kind of way. 
So there is this, this ditch we can easily veer into. But the fear of the ditch can't keep us from, or shouldn't keep us from driving down the road at all, and that can happen too. But just because the Holy Spirit makes us uncomfortable doesn't mean we can dismiss him. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. This is a real danger. And there are times when we are guilty of this. So how do we go about it? Well, here's the main thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit. And some of you, this may be new. Some of it, maybe not. The Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. That's the main part of his job description. If he was on LinkedIn.com, right, and his duties and his responsibilities, the one at the top in bold that was highlighted above anything else would be this, that his job is to point us to Jesus, among other things. He never tries to draw attention to himself. If he does, if you ever see anyone speaking in tongues or performing healings in a way that creates a spectacle or a production or a sideshow, you're not witnessing the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus in a way that edifies the church, never just to draw attention to himself, to create a kind of spectacle. He always points toward the Savior. He's a trustable, reliable witness, as John says in verse 6. The Spirit is truth. Which brings us to our second eyewitness testimony. Testimony number two, the water. Verse 7, for there are three that testify about Jesus. Again, the Spirit, which we just covered, the water, which we're going to talk about now, and the blood. And these three agree. Now, this is the first time that John mentions water in this particular letter, so we don't really have any context to say, oh, well, he was referring to it in, in this way earlier in the letter. But we also have to remember that this isn't the only book in the Bible that, that John wrote. He wrote the, the Gospel of John, and he wrote the book of Revelation as well. So we can look to those for clues. And when we turn to the Gospel of John we find, we discover that water is used in a very powerful way to affirm Jesus' identity. John 1, 29 through 34. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said this to me. He on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So when John is speaking of water here, he's talking about the baptism of Jesus Christ in the Jordan River, where the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, right? And the Father, this voice booms down from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
I always think it's fascinating, that part where he, he calls his son well-pleasing, even though it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He hasn't actually done a whole lot yet, and yet the father is well-pleased with him. At the baptism of Christ, we see this powerful picture of God the Father and the Holy Spirit testifying to Jesus' identity. You may remember that just prior to Jesus' baptism, there was something else important that took place, and that was Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He went out into the, day, into the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. He was without food. And if you recall, Satan approached him with these kind of three separate temptations, and do you remember what he, what he said, how, how he, he kind of prefaced the first two? He said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. As if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off of this cliff because God will send his angels concerning you to lift your feet up so you won't hit a stone, right? If you are the Son of God, what's he doing? What's he attacking? He's attacking Jesus' identity. As God's son, he's trying to get Jesus to question who he is, if he is really, in fact, the son of God. And so on the heels of this, we have the baptism of Jesus, where God's words from heaven boom out as a loud counter argument to this, this argument against Satan testifying to the truth that Jesus is, in fact, God's son, the second person of the Trinity who came in the flesh to save the world from sin. When Jesus entered the dirty waters of the Jordan River that day, he revealed his close association with sinners. One of my favorite questions that people ask me sometimes is, I've got it again and again, so I think it's pretty common, and I've asked it myself, why did Jesus have to be baptized? He didn't sin. He was sinless, right? Right? So why did he have to go through this? Well, Jesus didn't have to be baptized for himself. He was baptized for us to identify fully with sinful humanity, to take our sin upon himself. He entered the dirty, mucky waters of the Jordan that day with all of the, the sweat from the crowds mingled in there, and he came out because Jesus comes to take the sins of the world upon himself, that we might be cleansed. See, he identified with us fully in our frail and broken human state. God doesn't distance himself from your failures and your sin and your mess. He draws near to you and he forgives you. After all, this is Emmanuel, God with us, not God apart from us. Jesus' baptism testifies to this truth. And in the same way, our own baptism testifies as well. It's a powerful witness to God's work. Where we as helpless sinners receive God's grace, forgiveness, faith, new life, and entrance into God's family. One of my favorite things to do is to do baptism. Like, I remember the very first one I did at my first church, and it was a, a little baby. And we'd, we'd kind of, I'd kind of walk the parents through it, right, so they knew what was coming. And the, the kids seemed like in a really good mood at that point. Then the time for it came, and it was, it was kicking, and it was screaming, and it was loud, and it was all this, this protest, right? 
And I, I, as a new pastor, I'm sitting up there doing my very first baptism of this screaming kid, and it's like, well, I'm not doing it so well. But the truth is that baptism is such a picture of what happens when God's grace meets us apart from our own efforts, apart from our own abilities, and he comes to us as the helpless sinners that we are. I think the best instruction I ever received from a seminary professor on baptism, Luke, you've probably heard this too, he said, baptism isn't something we do for God, it's something God does for us. Baptism isn't something we do for God, it's something God does for us. If we truly believe that everything is gift, that everything is grace, then that applies to baptism as well. Is it is God's gift to us. Does anyone here still have their uh, their baptism certificate? Yeah? A few? I've still got mine. And it was fun. My parents kept the bulletin from the day I was baptized too, so I can read through it. It was funny because it was the story of the prodigal son on that day that was being preached on. I don't know what, what that says for me. <laughs> I have to spend some more time thinking about that. Um, but that certificate is not an award, but a gift. It's not an award, but a gift. It's not where we proudly, baptism isn't where we proudly display our own trophies, but where God holds us up as His trophy, naming and claiming us as His own. That's the picture Scripture paints of baptism. Galatians 3, 26 or 27 says, For you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To put on Christ means you wear Jesus. It means you have been clothed in His perfect righteousness. You wear that Team Jesus jersey wherever you go, and God is not going to cut you from His team. Because God doesn't do that. Now, you can quit the team, you can walk away, you can reject his gift. Sadly, we see this happen. People walk away from the Lord all the time, and it breaks his heart. It should break ours too. Yet the fact remains, God calls the water to the stand to testify. Jesus' baptism at ours is a powerful witness to his identity. But God has one more witness to call to the stand, besides the Spirit and the water. God calls the blood to the stand. The Spirit and the water, these might seem a little less tangible, but the blood is crystal clear. What, what is the blood referring to? It's referring to the cross. He's talking about the cross where Jesus died in our place, shedding his own blood, paying the penalty for our sins, and crushing the head of Satan underfoot. The Apostle Paul lays it out pretty clearly in Romans 3, 22b through 25. It says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. The cross is where we see God's love most clearly displayed. It's the most unmistakable piece of evidence that He cares for you. And God sees you today, where you are, as you are, right here, right now, struggling under the weight of burdens too heavy to carry, trying to clean out the skeletons in your closet, maybe the same skeletons you thought you'd buried for good last week, wrestling with the same sins that have plagued you for years, the ones you wonder, can God really forgive that? Again, there's no way he could love someone like me. He sees you caught and trapped in your mess. Maybe it's a mess you made yourself or a mess someone else made and you're trying unsuccessfully to clean up. Maybe it's the failures you thought you'd forgotten, the internet histories you thought you'd deleted hurtful words you spoke, the past you can't forget. Whatever it is, He invites you today to take all of that to Golgotha, to confess, to cast your cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. And He's the only one who can cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. See, it's only there at Calvary, in the midst of the blood and gore and death of the cross, where the consequences of our own sin are lit up brightly and displayed in full 4K HD 1080p that God can make things right. Because you see, in what looked like ultimate defeat, Jesus won the greatest victory the world has ever seen. Defeating sin, death, and the devil. Everything wrong is being made right. Friends, that's the reality that we as Christians live in. So you've now heard the eyewitness testimony. The spirit, the water, and the blood. Right? They've made their cases. They've testified to Jesus. They've presented the evidence. So really then... The only thing left is for the jury to render a verdict, to give an answer to the question, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that His love and forgiveness can reach even you? In John's Gospel, Chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Jesus puts this very question to Martha after the death of her brother brother Lazarus. This is the text I want to end with today. And my hope, my prayer, that as I read it, my my hope would be that you'd be able to reflect upon this, to put yourself in in the shoes of Martha with, with Jesus there asking this question. And my prayer is that you would find yourself giving the same answer that Martha did. Because the way you answer this one simple question, do you believe, matters more than anything else in your life. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Do you believe this? Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.